chapter, Joshua chapter 1, most of, most of our time together will focus on verses 6 through 9, but we need the whole context to, to see something of what this passage teaches us. So Joshua chapter 1. It's always important to remember that as we hear God's word, this is God's word not just to Israel or to others, but this is God's word to us, and it's God's word to you. So let's listen carefully. Joshua chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea, toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success." Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves. For within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. To the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. They answered Joshua, saying, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word. 
Let's turn to him now in prayer. Lord God, we give thanks for your word. We rejoice in the fact that you, the eternal and almighty God, speaks to us, your children, that we know that everything we read in the scriptures is true and righteous all together. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider your word this morning, that you would make us ready to believe your promises and to keep your commandments. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. As we uh, consider this chapter this morning, it's probably helpful for us to give a quick overview of the book of Joshua, at least in this way, to consider uh, the theme, at least as I understand it, of the whole of the book of Joshua. And I would summarize it in this way, very simply, that the Lord shows himself to be a powerful, faithful, covenant-keeping God. And if you want to be a little bit more direct and maybe a little bit more of a make a more powerful statement, we could even say this, the Lord proves himself to be a powerful, faithful, covenant-keeping God. And understand that that's a word we need to hear because the God of Joshua is not just a God to Joshua, and he was not just a God to Israel, but he's our God. This same powerful, faithful, covenant-keeping God is our God, And when he makes promises to us, we know that he always keeps them. We'll see that this morning. We also need to see uh, the picture in particular of what's focused on in the book of Joshua. There is one covenant promise in particular that dominates the book of Joshua. If you remember God's promise to Abraham, he promised him several things. He promised him seed and land and to make them a blessing to all the families of the earth. Joshua focuses in particular on the promise of land. In fact, this first chapter describes the land in several different ways. First of all, we're told that the land for the people of God was a gift from God. We see that in verses 2 and 3. Moses, my servant, is dead. It says there, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them. It goes on to say in verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. This is God's gift that he secures for his people. But the land is also an inheritance. See that in particular in verse 6. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. This is the land of their inheritance, the inheritance that comes to them from God. And as their inheritance, it's also, thirdly, a place of rest. Look at verses 13 and 15. The Lord your God is providing you, it says in verse 13, a place of rest, and will give you this land. And then in verse 15, it says, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has given to you. It's a land of rest. Imagine what that would mean for the people of Israel. 400 years in Egypt where they possessed nothing and they were slaves to that nation. 40 years wandering in the wilderness where they never really had a place to call home. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you a place of rest. 
So if we summed up the promise, we've seen the theme about who God is, but the promise of the book of Joshua is this. God, that covenant-keeping God, is saying to Joshua and to the people of Israel, I will give you rest in the land of your inheritance. So they have that promise, but they also have an obligation. God, in speaking to Joshua, tells him that he's to lead the people into the promised land. They're to go over the Jordan, and they're to take the land. And if you know much about the book of Joshua, you know what a difficult task that was, how much it demanded of the people of God. So how do we reconcile those two things? It's a gift, but it's an obligation and something they have to take. Can we reconcile those two things? I think, actually, it's a pattern that we find in the whole of Scriptures. We see it very clearly in many places in the New Testament. Just one to think about, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You notice there's a promise of salvation, a promise of God uh, making them faithful and making them able to keep, but then a call for them to obey. This is really the whole bent of the gospel. Salvation is a work of God, his work alone. It's a gift and a promise, but it's a gift and promise that we're called to possess and pursue. We see that pattern very clearly in the book of Joshua. We see as well that as they're called to possess and pursue it, pursue it, that God gives them every resource they need so that they can enter into that promised inheritance. So we see in, in Joshua 1 a plan of God, a plan to possess the land, a promise that God will give them the land, but then a commission that with eyes fixed upon that promise, they're to pursue it with all of their might. And then as we focus in on verses 6 through nine, we see a command given three different times. I think you probably caught it there as you were listening. Be strong and courageous. This wasn't new to Joshua. He received that same threefold command in Deuteronomy chapter 31 as Moses is showing the people the land and preparing them to enter into it after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Moses gives a commission to Israel and also to Joshua. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Moses speaks to Israel and says, be strong and courageous. In verse 8, he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And then in verse 23, God himself speaks and says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. We see that same threefold command here in Joshua chapter 1. But there's one thing I think it's significant that's different here in Joshua. The command intensifies each time that it's spoken. Verse 6, it says, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, there's this subtle change, be strong and very courageous. And then in verse 9, it says, be strong and courageous. And then he adds, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Three days from entering the land, he's reminding Joshua to be brave, to be resolute, to be doggedly courageous as he leads the people into the land of promise. 
And as he prepares him to go in courage, he gives him resources. That's what we'll see in verses 6 through 9. Three resources to strengthen Joshua and Israel on their way. One, he promises an inheritance. Two, he gives a book, a guide, if you will. And three, God offers himself. An ever-present God, always with his people. So let's consider those three things. First of all, an inheritance. It's important to notice, even as he gives this command, how, how important it would be for the people of Israel, for God, to give them sustaining promises. The task that he's giving them is big. In fact, you can remember maybe the last time that they were given this task, as they stood at the foot of the river and were shown the promised land and told to go in and take it, they sent 12 spies into the land, one from each tribe. And 10 of those spies came back and said, the cities are too strong, the people are too big, their weapons are too great, their walls are too high. The task that you've given us is completely impossible. Two stood up and said otherwise, one of them, Joshua. But they were afraid to go in. And they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And now as they stand at that same river, the Lord gives them a promise. A promise of an inheritance. He's telling them essentially, I made a promise and I always keep my promises. Be strong and courageous because you know who I am and you trust in me. In fact, it seems as if this first call to obedience is something very simple, something like this. That obedience is rooted in faith. In other words, you say, be strong and courageous because you know the promise is true. Be strong and courageous because you know that God is faithful. God describes for Joshua the quality of faith that is necessary for obedience. He describes the character of faith that always produces obedience. It's characterized by a fixed gaze on the promise, on the inheritance. Actually, as you read this verse, it sounds very much like the kind of faith that Abraham had as it's described for us in Hebrews 11. You might turn there. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. This great chapter about what faith is and with examples of many who, who persevered in faith. And it gives us this description of Abraham beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. You'd almost put a period there. That's a whole sermon. By faith, Abraham obeyed. This is what faith does. It obeys God's commandments. Thomas Manton, in writing about faith and obedience, wrote these words. I think they're helpful as we start to dig in here. He said, Obedience is faith's daughter. Faith hath not only to do with the grace of God, but with the duty of the creature as well. By apprehending grace, it, faith, works upon duty. Faith worketh by love. He quotes Galatians 5 verse 6. Goes on to write, it fills the soul with apprehensions of God's love and then makes use of the sweetness of love to urge us to more work or obedience. This is what faith does. It's an act of faith that obeys. 
So it says in Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, as as Abraham continued in faith and perseverance, he understood that the promise had had held more for him than simply dirt in Canaan, but a city built by God with eternal foundations that will never be shaken. I think we can say that Abraham persevered by faith because he had his eyes fixed on heaven. The eternal reward of fellowship with God unbroken. And God calls Joshua to that same kind of faith. A faith that perseveres in confident, fearless pursuit of the promise. In obedience to God. And it's only that kind of faith that produces obedience. We know as we read the story of Joshua that he was a faithful man in many ways. He pursued that promise. But we also know that he didn't perfectly pursue it. He fell, as we all do. But in Joshua, we have a picture of one who's better than Joshua. Jesus is described in Hebrews 12 as one who endured the cross, despising the shame. And how did he do it? For the joy that was set before him. He knew the end. Fellowship again with his father and fellowship with his people. And we're called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. To be strong and courageous because we know the promise. And more more significantly because we know the one who made the promise and who keeps the promise. So it begins with an inheritance. But secondly, God tells Joshua that he's been given a book. Look at verse 7. It says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. In other words, God is saying that the people of God are people of the book. They know the word, they meditate on it, they memorize it, they keep it. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. I think it's important for us to understand, even as we hear that word law, that we understand it in its fullness. When we hear law, we usually think commandments to be kept. And that's certainly part of what God is telling Joshua. But when he says this book of the law, it seems as if he has in mind the first five books of the Old Testament, which Joshua now has and the people of God have. Later in the the book, they read it publicly before all the people of God. In other words, it's the commandments, but it's also the promises, the reminders of God's faithfulness. And God's telling Joshua, know these things, the promises and the commandments. Meditate 
on these things, the promises and the commandments. Keep these things. Believe the promises. Obey the commandments. And then you will have success. For those who follow God and who follow Christ, the word of God is our guide. It's a light to our path. And if we want to grow in faith and continue in perseverance in the good fight of faith, we do so as we read and study and meditate upon God's word and as we keep it. That was God's command to Joshua. It's significant for several reasons that this command is particularly given to Joshua. First of all, if you consider the moment in the history of God's people, it's significant that God's pointing him to a book. Throughout the book of Genesis, God is appearing and speaking directly to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But as you continue through the Old Testament, that becomes less and less frequent. And God's saying, you have a book. Read it. Study it. Keep it. And if I could just say this, he had five books. We have 66. The whole counsel of God, which is all profitable for life and godliness. We're called to read and to meditate on it and keep it. But consider as well who Joshua is, that he would be given this command. He's a soldier. He's a commander of the army of the Lord. We think of him as valiant in battle, and he was by the strength of God. But God's telling this commander of the army of the Lord that of first importance for him is to read and study and meditate on God's word. That if he would have success in battle, he must first have success in knowing God's word. He describes it for him in several different ways in verses 7 and 8. He gives him, first of all, a general summary of what it means be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, he says that you may have success. He's describing not just a reading and meditating, but a total commitment to God's word, to do all of God's word all of the time. And then he describes how to do that in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You should be reading it and meditating on it day and night so that you know it, so that it sinks in in such a way that it becomes a part of who you are and how you live And then you're to keep it. Joshua did this, by the way. If you read the rest of the book of Joshua, he first of all calls Israel to follow in this command of God at the end of this chapter and tells them to obey everything that God tells them to do. In chapter 5, for the first time in centuries, Israel sees circumcision and Passover reinstituted among the people of God in obedience to God's word. In chapter 8, they have a public reading of the law of God. All the people of God gathered together as they read through the whole of the first five books of the Bible. Something they're called to do every seven years as a people. And then at the end of his life in chapter 24, he calls Israel to choose who they will serve and to follow God as he's revealed himself in his word. A complete and total commitment to God's Law that produces, don't miss this, obedience. Meditate on it day and night so that you be, may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 
complete commitment to reading and knowing and keeping God's word. And again, in this commandment and his following of this commandment, Joshua serves as a foreshadowing, a pointing forward to Jesus. He does keep God's law, but not perfectly. But Jesus himself came into this world in perfect obedience to his Father. He knew God's will, and he always kept it. And he did that for you if you're believing and trusting in him. So there's an inheritance, a promise. There's a book. But then third, God offers himself. Look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's interesting how that verse begins. Have I not commanded you? Has God forgotten? Did I command you or didn't I? That's not what's happening. He's gently reminding as a loving father. Those of you who are parents, maybe you do this sometimes. Your child walks into the house on a cold winter day and takes off their coat and drops it in the middle of the living room. And you say, haven't I told you to hang up your coat? They're in the bathroom, take a shower, and they leave their dirty clothes in the middle of the floor and their wet towel in the corner of the bathroom. And you say, haven't I told you? Put away your clothes, hang up your towel. This is how God speaks to his children with gentle, loving compassion. Haven't I commanded you? And he tells him, be strong and courageous. He goes on to say, do not be afraid. You know, that's the most common command in the whole of scriptures. Fear not. Do not be afraid. He graciously calls him to courage and faith. And he reminds him of his presence. How can you not be afraid? How can you not be dismayed in this world where the enemies of God are raging against Christ and against his church? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua's heavenly father reminds him that he's always with him. He's already told him that in verse 5. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. We can even think about it in the history of Israel up to this point. 400 years of slavery in Egypt and God was always with you. Forty years wandering in the wilderness provided you manna from heaven. Always cared for you. And now as you lead the people into the promised land, I'm always with you. In other words, he's saying, I am your powerful, faithful, covenant-keeping God. And notice how I said that. He doesn't say, I am a or the, I'm your powerful, faithful, covenant-keeping God. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And friends, that's not just a promise to Joshua. It's not just a promise to Israel. It's God's, God's promise to you. If you're trusting and resting in Jesus. In fact, we find the fulfillment of that promise in many ways in the person and work of Jesus. I think especially in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told in the very first chapter that this child that's coming is Emmanuel, God with us. Later in Matthew, we're told that where two or three of his people are gathered together, God is right there in their midst. 
Jesus tells his disciples as he's preparing and headed toward the cross that he's sending a helper who will be with them and it will be even better than his presence with them right now because they will have the Holy Spirit always. And as he gives us the great commission at the end of Matthew 28, he tells us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 verse 5 can say that when the enemy inevitably threatens and attacks seeking to devour you, that you can rest assured in this promise that God through Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's interesting as you work through the gospel or the book of Joshua, if you do at the same time work through the book of Acts, how many parallels you see to the call to Joshua and to the people of Israel and the call of Christ to his church. Joshua begins with their faithful leader Moses having just departed. Jesus gives the great commission just before he departs to the right hand of God. Before Jesus leaves, he gives us a vision of a conquest that we've been sent on, not completely unlike, but so much better than the conquest of the promised land, because we go not with physical weapons of swords and battle, but we go armed with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And he sends us not to capture some land in a particular part of the world, but to capture the nations through the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Lord claims his own and gathers them into his kingdom. You see, Joshua 1 is a prefiguring, a shadowing of what comes through Christ and what he gives to his church. He gives us a plan, the conquest of the, of the world through the gospel. He gives us a promise of an eternal inheritance that is unfading and undefiled, kept in heaven for us, for you. And he gives us a command to go and to make disciples of the nations. So we go in the power of the risen Christ who's always with us with the same promise of an inheritance, with a book to guide us, and with God always with us. But there's one more thing that I want us to see in this first chapter of Joshua. After verse 9, the Lord's given Joshua a commission. Now he goes to the 12 tribes of Israel and calls them to follow in his footsteps as he, the captain of the army, leads them across the Jordan and into the promised land. But then we have this strange thing, these two and a half tribes, where Joshua speaks directly to them and says, you're going as well. What's happening there? If you look back at some point at Numbers 32, we're not going to have time to do that today, but in Numbers 32, as they're preparing and looking forward to the promised land, these two and a half tribes see land on their side of the Jordan that looks like good land, a place where they can be prosperous and care for their families and care for their livestock. And they go to Moses and ask, could we have this land? And Moses goes to God and says, may they have this land? And God says, yes, they can have this land as long as they keep this promise that when the other tribes cross the Jordan into the land, they go with them and fight with them until all the people of God have rest in the land. So why is that here? Why do we need to hear that particular part of this chapter? Well, first of all, it's tying together some loose ends. It's holding them to their promise and showing them keeping their promise. 
But there's a great theological truth tied up in what's happening here at the end of Joshua 1. It's reminding the people of God that we're one people with one covenant and one promise with one land and one inheritance and one rest as we serve the one true God and we rest in the one and only Savior. It's reminding us, even in this narrative, that the Christian life and the Christian walk and the Christian battle is something that we do together. We're not alone in it. That to continue in faith and obedience requires us to walk together as we strengthen and encourage each other in the good fight of faith. It reminds us that faith and obedience and sanctification and the whole Christian walk is a team sport. We're never on our own. We see that clearly in the New Testament in places like Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together. This picture in Joshua is pointing us to the fullness of the gospel and what it means to live the Christian life in union with Christ and in fellowship with his church. But I think as well, it's a call to evangelism. I really do think it's that. This image of two and a half tribes have rest and nine and a half do not yet have rest. And that the rest of those tribes have to continue to fight the good fight of faith until all of them have rest and enjoy the inheritance. That we should never rest until all are gathered into the fold and every last one of Christ's sheep possesses the inheritance. And as we close there, let's consider the gospel in this way. I think it's helpful as we read Old Testament texts to ask the question, where are we in the text? Where am I in this text? Our tendency in reading these great narratives of the Old Testament is to think, I'm Joshua. I'm going to disappoint you. You're not Joshua. I'm not Joshua. You're Israel. And did you notice how the tribes respond in verses 16 and 17? I doubt this was an encouraging word to Joshua. They answered Joshua, all that you've commanded us we will do. Wherever you send us we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things. So we will obey you. Wow. But isn't that us? With full purpose toward obedience, with a sincere desire to follow in the footsteps of our Savior, we so often stumble and fall. But friends, we have a better captain than Joshua. We have Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God and the captain of our souls who blazes the trail to heaven for us. And we can follow in his footsteps, trusting in him, resting in him, knowing that he will lead us to our heavenly home. Are you weary? Are you tired of the struggle of the Christian life in a world broken by sin and sorrow. Turn to Jesus. He says, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And that same powerful, faithful, covenant-keeping God will give rest to all those who trust in him. 
Let's do that today. All of us put our trust in Christ and know that the way to heaven is secured for us with an inheritance undefiled because we have a perfect Savior who's alive and reigning. Turn to him. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks that we can come to you in the name of Jesus who is perfectly faithful, who took on human flesh, underwent the sorrows of this life, and obeyed your law perfectly in our place. And so, Lord, we pray that as we fix our eyes on him and trust in him as our perfect Savior, that you would strengthen us to persevere in faith and obedience, that we would love your word, that we would read it and study it and meditate on it and memorize it, and by the power of the risen Son, keep it to your glory, and that in our keeping of it, we would see as well the joy that we have to share that gospel with others so that all could be gathered in to know the rest that belongs to those who are in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.